Books can take us around the world. They can take us to the intimate spaces of human experiences and they can help us grow through their words. Stay tuned for People of the Book with Stephen Kravitz. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM and the studio is quite busy. We've got must be the biggest show of this year on People of the Book and we've had big shows. We've had lots of big interviews on High FM. And today we've got a double listing. We've got two huge international authors. I think their books have changed people's conceptions of so many ideas, so many events. We joined in studio, live in the flesh. Heather Morris, the author of The Tattooist of Auschwitz and the soon, the forthcoming book, Silka's Journey, and Simon Sebag Montefiore, the acclaimed historian, of books about Jerusalem and Russian history, books of an overview of history, the titans uh, of history and letters, and also a forthcoming book about speeches that have changed the world. Also, a f- an author of historical fiction set in mid-century Russia, and with, together with his wife, children's books about rabbits, the royal rabbits of London. So we've got... People here who have between them a huge amount of stories, an unbelievable impact on the world, and it's our great privilege to have them in the studio. Welcome. Thank you. And, and I've got to say, I mean, Simon, he bears the, the massive amount of all those lovely stories you've just been telling. I've just brought one to the party so well, far. It's great to be here. And we've been, we've been touring around South Africa together at various times. So it's great to be reunited here. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the first thing I ask everyone who's been on the radio show here, whether in live, in person or over the phone, is to please introduce yourself in your own words and on your own terms. Heather, you're not a, you're no stranger to Chayefim because mm-hmm. we had an interview with you over the phone last year. And a lot of people who are listening to the station right now or who will listen to the podcast have heard you speaking. But please, ladies first, introduce yourself once again on Chayefim in your own words and on your own terms. Thank you. Um, yes, I hail from New Zealand, fifth generation of there, and I now live in Melbourne, Australia. At the age of 65, I produced a novel, The Tattooist of Auschwitz, my first novel, and soon to be released, my second. Um, I am a grandmother of four and a bit children, my only other claim to fame. And Simon. Um, gosh, I, I, I'm, I'm Simon Seabag Montefiore. I'm a, I live in London. I'm a British author, I'm a storyteller, I'm a historian, and as you said, I, I write history books, I've, I write fiction, and some of that fiction is, is children's fiction, so um, I'm, I'm married to a, to a novelist, Santa Montefiore, and I've got two children, and I'm very happy to be in South Africa. This is a Jewish radio station, so you can't get away without answering the question on the Montefiore part of your surname. Um, I'm I'm... Just, I'm one of the Montefiore family that, um, that's, that's, that played a part in the foundation of Israel and Jerusalem and all that. And um, so I'm his great, I'm Moses Montefiore's great, great, great nephew. And I'm very proud of that. Very, I'm actually the ultimate Jewish mongrel. I mean, I'm descended from the sea bags 
or as we as we say in in Arabic, Sebach family. We're we're Moroccans. The Montefiori's come from Italy and and um, Spain and Mexico, and my mother's family are Litvaks from um, we, you know from Lithuania and Poland and Russia. So I'm the ultimate Jewish mongrel. <laughs> I'm very proud of it. Excellent. <laughs> what more can I say? You'll find a very warm welcome here in South Africa because most of the Jewish community is descended from the Litvaks. Yeah, the this Lithuanians. is sort of Lithuania in the sun, isn't it? Yeah, this is yeah Lithuania on safari. <laughs> We'll be back with conversations with these two extraordinary writers straight after this ad break. The book of love is long and boring. This is People of the Book with Stephen Kravitz. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM, and we have Heather Morris and Simon Sebag Montefiore in the studio. Simon, I'm going to direct the first question at you. Can you please give us an overview of the books that you have written and divide those into sections? Firstly, the nonfiction, which we can then divide into three sections, the, the Russian history, Jerusalem, and then your overviews, Titans of History, Written in History, and your new forthcoming book, Speeches That Have Changed the World. Then your fiction titles, and then this very interesting series that you've written the with children's your wife. Ones. The children's yeah. ones. Real yeah, okay. Okay, well, I mean, I, I started... Um, I started writing my big history books the very end of the 90s. And the first one I wrote was Catherine the Great and Potemkin. And then Stalin, the Court of the Red Tsar. And then Young Stalin, which is in the wrong order, but what the hell. And um, then I did Jerusalem, the biography, which is probably my favorite nonfiction book, my favorite history book. And then I did the Romanovs. And so that's that section. And... Um, they're all they're all sort of very accessible. They're meant to be anyway, um, but researched in archives and so on in Russia, in Jerusalem, or wherever. And then um, what's next? Oh yeah, the fiction. So then there's the Moscow trilogy, which is historical fiction, um, which is three novels. It's actually, the story of a Jewish family in st- in Stalinist Russia in the middle of the 20th century. Um, they're different from the history books. They're they're all about their love stories, their family stories. And, but they're also about love and death. And, um, and then, um, the, I do overview histories as well, like the Titans of, Titans of History. And now this written, written in history, Letters That Changed the World, which are really just accessible. Um, I mean, I, I mean, I, I love this, um, letters book. I mean, it's just been great fun choosing it. It's, it's not too serious. You can just treat it as a sort of delicatessen of words. A sort of, it's meant to be a treasure chest and you can open it anywhere. And it's got a lot of Jewish, Letters of Jewish interest too. Oh, and then there's the Royal Rabbits of London, which I write with my wife. It's a sort of we're a family business, and um, we had this we had this idea and we just done it, and it's now being made into a big movie by Fox. It's going to be a, a, a hybrid animated movie. In fact, we just found out that the second the second um, draft of the script is is ready, so we're very excited. And Heather. Please, can you do the same for your two books, The Tattoos of Auschwitz, which I'm sure most people listening to the station have already read, and then also just show us how your new forthcoming book, Silka's Journey, Thank you. branches out from The Tattooist. Absolutely. Well, The Tattooist is the true story of Lali Sokolov. It is his story told in the words that he told to me over a three-year period that I spent with him. Um, look, I'm, I go to pains to say that it is not the story of the Holocaust. It is just a Holocaust story, Luddy's story. Now, spending three years with him 
was this amazing period of my life. And during that time, we, we, we had drafts of a screenplay because Simon's just been talking about screenplays and I'm going to get my two bobs worth here. This story existed as a screenplay for 12 years. That's how I only ever saw it, played out on a screen. Big or small, I didn't care. Um, and I'm going to say now, I'm very happy to say it too is being developed into a six-part miniseries in the UK. It tells the story of Lully and Gita, and here's a little heads up, but I haven't let on to too many people right now because I'm still trying to come to grips with the fact that the miniseries now is also going to include old Lully and me, and they're going to weave in to the storyline my time with him. So that is something to try and come to terms with, that there will be an actress out there playing me. I've gone to great pains to tell the producers this was 15 years ago, guys. I was younger, thinner, and blonder. Keep that in mind when <laughs> casting. Now, when the first time Lully said to me, when I was talking to him back in the, the early 20s, did I tell you about Silka? And I said, no, who was she? And his next words were, she saved my life. And throughout those several years, I heard from him stories about this brave young girl. She turned 16 in the March of 1942. A month later, she was in Auschwitz-Birkenau. She survived by being the, the sex slave, the concubine of the one particular commandant in Birkenau and another uh, brutal officer there. She was there in Auschwitz on the 27th of January 1945 when the Red Army liberated the camp. The finger was pointed at her and she was accused of being a collaborator because she slept with the enemy sentenced to 15 years in a Siberian gulag. I had to tell her story. I peppered her in The Tattooist, so you got a taste of who she was, knowing all along that it, her story would stand alone. And I'm very, very delighted to say it will be out in October this year. I'm happy to say it too has a happy ending. And, um, yeah, Silka's journey. The next question I want to ask both of you, I'm just going to preface it a little bit about myself. Uh, I teach history in schools. I teach grade 7 and grade 8 history. I teach grade 11 and grade 10 history. Uh, I'm passionate about history. Both of you write history, fiction and nonfiction. Why is history so important? Well, for so, Jewish people, I mean, it's especially important. But I think in the, in the present time, I think it's always been important, but I think in the present time when... So much of civil society and so many democracies and so many, so there's so much lie, lies afoot. I think history is more important now than it's ever been before. And so I think we have a big responsibility, um, us writers, us mm. storytellers, to, um, to, to, to present the truth, um, whether it's in fiction or non-fiction. Um, I don't think it matters. I think they're both really important ways of telling history. Don't you, Heather? Absolutely. And, and look, it's quite simple to me. If you don't know history and you don't learn from history, you're damned to repeat history. Sadly, I don't think we learn and we know enough because we do keep repeating it. And all I can say is that from my perspective, anyone who will listen to me, I will talk to them about the history that I have become passionate about talking about, and, and that includes stories around the Holocaust and the, the survivors, these amazing boys and girls, and they were just boys and girls, and how they survived to tell the story of all those who didn't. When it comes to the specific eras and the countries that you're focusing on, 
Simon, you're focusing on, to a large degree, Russia. And uh, I suppose a family passion, Jerusalem. Mm. And Heather, you focused on, well, you didn't really focus. This story fell into your lap. Lali chose mm. you. But it's been the Holocaust and I suppose post-World War II, Russian, Siberian, uh, Gulag. Yeah. What what other eras of history or other countries do you find fascinating and also will resonate with the world today? Both of you, yeah. Yeah, look, uh, for me it is quite clear the history of the two countries I come from, you know, New Zealand, whose history is quite well told and taught in schools. And the difference between the indigenous people in New Zealand and how they have carved their way in, in the modern world and, and how they are now represented in that country, it just varies so differently to across the ditch, as we call it, Australia, whose indigenous history has been denied being taught in schools for far too long. And even when it is, um, it, it's the, the white man's version of it. And um, I was involved in Aboriginal health for 20 years where I worked. And for that to change, we have got to go back in Australia and address the wrongs from the history of that country. And so they're the two histories, along with, of course, the the, um, Holocaust stories and the Gulag stories. Simon, yours? Well, I think think, think the interesting thing is that you know the gulag stories and and the, the, you know, the world war 2 are such extraordinary um are such extraordinary stories they're such extraordinary there's so many extraordinary experiences and journeys in those mm. in those periods that that you know stories do fall into your lap and my novels come from all three of the novels in the trilogy a bit like yours have sort of fallen into my lap yep. and i've actually met the you know i've actually met some of the people in some of them and so so they're very strong um and very and very and very sad as well, actually, but fascinating. But I think, for me, I mean, South America, the conquest of the Americas is one of the great stories, um, which I'm, I'm now doing a world history, uh, which, which will be out in a year or two, I don't know. And, um, and I'm doing a lot of, I'm, t- I'm telling it the other way around. It's going to be much less European and much more from the point of view of um, the indigenous, the so-called indigenous peoples, but, you know, the, the, um, the, the inhabitants of the Americas and, and, and also there's going to be a lot of African history and I'm going to be telling it through uh, many of the great kingdoms of West Africa, of Morocco, of Egypt and of course the Zulu, the Zulu and, and other um, great stories of, of Africa. So, so those are the stories that I'm, I'm sort of fascinated in at the moment. That's why it's fun to be in South Africa right now. I'm so happy with your answer. <laughs> I, I'm currently teaching about Timbuktu and Mali to grade ah. sevens and they want to know why is this relevant and mm. it, it is very relevant, and there's so much scholarship on these eras and these yes. places that were, until a short while ago, so exotic. We're in conversation with Simon Sebag Montefiore and with Heather Morris. We are talking, writing history. We will be back straight after this break. The book of love is long and boring. This is People of the Book with Stephen Kravitz. This is People of the Book, and we have the great pleasure 
a thrilling opportunity to be in conversation with Simon Sebag Montefiore and with Heather Morris, two world-famous and best-selling authors. They're in South Africa for the book festivals, Kingsmead and Franschhoek, and they are here in High FM studio. We're talking history, writing history. That's the theme for the show, and it's so wonderful to have two authors who've made their reputations writing history to talk about us, to talk about this very topic. What does truth mean with regards to history? And how do both nonfiction and fiction writing allow the historian to write the truth? It's really a few questions all in one. Mm. What is truth and how do you how do you put across the truth in fiction and in nonfiction? How do you begin? Yeah, look, with, with Lully's story, it became a matter of my telling his story. I have met many, many Holocaust survivors. Australia had a large number come there. And also I've met them in other countries, of, uh, in the States and in, in the UK. And what it comes down to, to me, that every one of them experienced that place, the the concentration camps and the Holocaust differently. No two people seem to have experienced it the same, how they were treated, where they were. And the only way that you can tell their stories is to be true to them as individuals. And that's what I come back to in terms of I'm not trying to tell the overall story of, of particular concentration camps and the Holocaust in general. There are academics and historians like me. Simon can gets to call himself a historian. I don't, uh, because I have not got done the research. I have not done the studies. I like to find individuals and tell their stories. Now, in terms of making sure you get the accuracies right, we went to quite a lot of pains and paid professional researchers to confirm many of the details that are in the book. I started reading testimonies of other people, and then I decided to stop that because they were going to potentially impact how I told Lully's story, and I only wanted to tell his. Now, with regard to making sure that you get your facts straight, of course it's important, but you've got to marry that up with, here are the facts that have been written historically, and here's a person who was there and how they saw it. And I had one inaccuracy in particular in the book when I used the word penicillin when I shouldn't have. I did go back and look at the tape that Lully made talking about that, and he used that word, and I had blindly just you know, translated it. Um, with regard to things like, what was Geeta's number? Well, she was given one number when she went in, and Lully renumbered her. I chose to use the number that he gave me. Of course it's important, and I'm happy to stand up and, and to talk about any inaccuracies anyone finds in my books and debate them. Um, but not to too much extent because does it detract from the story? Does it detract from Lully's story that I used a word penicillin? I don't think so, and the readers seem to agree with me. But you've got to get your facts right. I totally agree with that. And Simon? Well, I mean, I think, I think, um, I think there, is the, there are the particular stories and there's the wide historical perspective. And I'm lucky because I've done both, really, in my in my book. So I've sort of I've been I've been there, and I've also done these big sweeping history books that um, where accuracy is everything. But the fact is, there's there's really only one truth. Um, there are many stories, and I think the thing is to get 
to get as close to the truth as possible. And I think the writer, the historian, whatever you call it, the novelist, has to have a feeling in their gut, mm. uh, an instinct of where the truth lies, and they have to follow it with with great f- ferocious vigilance um, and, and, and put it out there. Um, of course, historiography, the sort of nature of how we look at things changes all the time, and all histories are of their time as well as of the history they write. I mean, my big struggle was in Jerusalem, which um, which is such a sort of fought over history. And really, I just tried to, I, I just set myself not to be not to be affected by being Jewish and being connected to Israel and not and not being pro-Israel, anti-Israel, but just really struggling to get as close to the truth as I can in a place full of lies and myths. And um, and, you know, I, I expected that I would be I would offend um, both sides. And I have successfully done that. <laughs> so I, I regard that as a success. And I think that's yes. a sort of that's that's a, that's something I'm proud of, because, you know, I did I did not want to write a Zionist history of Jerusalem. And there's a lot of history now being put around in Israel, for example, that really is kind of highly politicized. And I've avoided that. This book is as close as you can to the real story of Jerusalem as I think anybody can get. The fact that I have 11 and 12 year olds writing to me who said I've never read a book about the Holocaust before. And I've read yours, and now I'm asking my parents to take me to, no, that's to Auschwitz. Um, the, the impact this book has had, it just totally overwhelms me. A general in the United States Army wrote to me last week, thanking me for writing the book. So I think it's, if it can reach an audience, and even if it just gives them a taste of it, but what I'm hearing is it's giving them more than a taste. People are now going and wanting to read more on their own. So my job is done. And also, Simon, your writings in Russia. Yes, Russia I mean, was cut off from the rest of the world during the communist years. Yes, and then archives being opened. There's there's revolutions of of of, of viewing what happened in the past now because of access to new information. Yeah, it was very exciting when because I was there when they opened basically opened the archives at the you know the, during the nineties at various times and, and they they produced my book on books on Stalin and so on and. That really was a very exciting thing because that was a sort of vanished history that no one really knew about and no one really knew who these people were. I mean, every biography of Stalin before then used to say, but he's a sort of an enigma or a mystery. Actually, he's not an enigma. I mean, we have thousands and thousands of his letters and notes and what have you. And so you can actually know Stalin quite well now. And um, he is a very fascinating character. And he's more he's more knowable than Hitler because Hitler didn't write very much. Well, Stalin wrote on thousands of letters and so on. So we, so we know a lot, and that was very exciting. And some of those letters you've included in Written in History, some of them show him in a very different light from them. You know, he was a monster, but there's also a personal side with his daughter and her letters to him and his to her, which shows him in quite a different view. Well, I think, I think, I think if you, I think the old sort of way of writing history that Stalin and Hitler were just, in, were just lunatics, um, or, or monsters, it's very unhelpful to understanding how history happens. And we need to understand how violence became normalized in these countries and also how these men persuaded people to back the millions of people. And so it's really very unhelpful to those old-fashioned sort of Cold War biographies and the post-war early biographies of Hitler are really useless in explaining to schoolchildren, for example, mm. how on earth the Nazis or the communists came to power in those countries. So I regarded it as my duty to, to, to show these people as they were, warts and all, but also huma- humanity and monstrosity together. And it's essential to understand that because 
Stalin was a people person. He actually charmed people. He worked very hard to win people over. He was a sort of old-fashioned machine politician, one part of him. But people are very complex. And in the fiction, in some ways, I've shown Stalin and, and, the, and, the, and what it was like to live in that time. In some ways, and Heather will, I know Heather will agree with this, in some ways in fiction, you can show more. Because, I mean, in my books, I've invented quite a lot. Um, but, the, but the historical background is all accurate. The gulags, for example. There's a gulag story in there which is based on people I've met. And there, so in the, in especially in the last book, Red, Red Sky at Noon. Um, so you can sometimes tell, tell the truth easier in fiction. Yeah, absolutely. And I chose to use uh, conversation and dialogue a lot in my story. That was my way of being able to tell that, create this conversations that Lully told me took part, place, but in his words, and I managed to put them in mine. Now you're talking about somebody like Stalin and the other side of him. Well, go to, go to Auschwitz. Go to the head there. Go to Hess whose family lived a fence away from where this evil was being perpetrated. Uh, his wife and his children, and just as a little aside, I have been contacted by Hess's granddaughter. She has read my book, and she has given it to her father. Hess's son is still alive, and um, he's apparently just now agreed to read it. He's been very close talking to his family about his father, but um, she's hinted in recent emails that... He may just be willing to say a word or two, and I'm just going to keep in touch with her. Interesting. Yes. So the history doesn't ever end. It ripples through the generations and across mm. the world. Heather, you've discussed your relationship with Lali, but you've written a book that's going to come out, as you said, in October about Silka. Do you have a relationship with her? No, I don't. She's died. Um, she died back in 2004. But we can still have relationships with people who we never met exactly. and who and, have died. And, um, and my relationship with her now has come through my visiting Kosciuszko in Slovakia, where she lived for 50 years with the man whose life she saved in that gulag and married. And I've sat in the very apartment that Silke and Ivan lived in for 50 years and, and felt their spirit in this, in this apartment, talked to their neighbours and have spoken to a fellow author in Slovakia who knew Silke and Ivan and who got these stories from them as individuals and is prepared to assist me with creating, well, the facts and the stories that Silke has told to him. So while a lot of the story in the Gulag I am creating based on testimonies of other women who were in Vorkuta, um, I'm marrying that with the research that I have got out of Moscow with that particular Gulag. She was in the one Gulag the whole 10 years. Then you can weave together the story of what was going on factually with what was going on underneath with the, the prisoners and the people who have made testimonies and told how it was. They exist. I know where Silka was. I know what she was doing working in the hospital. I can now weave her story into that. And I have these beautiful people back in Slovakia who knew her. I know when I, when I interviewed you last year, you had just come, you just arrived back in Australia from, ah, yes. from, from, from the Czech Republic. The Simon, we've heard how Heather has a relationship with both of these characters. You've been writing Biographies on Stalin, but you're spe spending a lot of time in 
um, archives. Then you've written about the Romanovs. Then you wrote about, you also wrote about Jerusalem. These are huge parts of your life that you've spent in the company of a city or of powerful people and Catherine the Great. Uh, how have these historical people or places entered your life? Well, of course, one has relationships with all these people. And when you read their letters and when you, or if you meet people that knew them, you, you have a growing relationship. And you have to sort of understand, and every writer has to sort of decide on, a, on an approach to these people, but also an open-minded approach. So sometimes you find things that surprise you. But, um, but since we're on a Jewish program, it's nice to talk about Jerusalem. You see, I, I mean, our family had a, had a very long relationship with Jerusalem. And so when I was brought up, we were brought up always we had a special relationship with Jerusalem. So we were kind of, we were, we were Anglo-Jewish, we were British Jews, but, but we also sort of, uh, Jerusalem was our other hometown, as it were. And so we would um, always go there a lot, and we knew lots of people there, and we, our family was close to Teddy Kollek and people like that. You know, those people who were running the new, Jer- the new Israeli Jerusalem. And so I always wanted to sort of write this book. I always had a dream of writing the Jerusalem book, but it's a very hard thing to do. So I kind of waited a bit. I wasn't confident enough when I started writing to write about Jerusalem. And then suddenly I felt I can do it, now I'm going to do it. And it was kind of helped by the fact that there wasn't really a biography of Jerusalem, a history of Jerusalem. There wasn't really a very good one um, at all, which is very strange if you think about it, because it's so famous. There are millions of books on different aspects of Jerusalem, but the whole lot, no. So I decided to do it, but it was very difficult because... As soon as I started to do it, like my father said to me, like, he rang me up and said, Simon, if you say that King David didn't exist, I'll never speak to you again. <laughs> and all sorts of my Palestinian friends and my Armenian friends, my, you know, everyone rang up and say, everyone had a threat. that if I didn't do it right, I, you know, I, I would, they would never speak to me again. And that's the nature of Jerusalem. It's so, um, it's so emotional that everyone feels, it's the one city in the world that everyone feels they own, they have a part of, they know it. And, of course, a lot of them have never been there. But that's a strange thing about writing about So Jerusalem is definitely the hardest thing. And I'm now updating the book so that it will be um, so that it will be out later in the year with a sort of updated Donald Trump included Netanyahu and Trump and the new and the new the new Middle East with, you know, SBS in Saudi Arabia and that sort of thing. So and there's also talking about since we're it's fun talking about these things. I mean, there's also a drama series that they're. They're, you know, in Lionsgate in LA are trying to make of, of, of the, um, of the story of Jerusalem, which will be a kind of Game of Thrones. I mean, it's fiction, um, but it's based on the book. On so this th- book. On this, on this Jerusalem book. So, um, I'll tell you one weird thing about this book. Um, not that, um, not that I could ever, it could ever equal, um, the sales of the tattooist, but amazingly, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's, it's getting on for a million copies in China, just in China. Which is very strange, but um, I went and promoted it there the other day. It was a very, very bizarre experience. But for some reason, because of their Silk Road interests, um, they it's it's sold enormous enormous numbers there. Congratulations! Isn't that hilarious? That's fantastic. But it's bizarre, right? Yeah. You wouldn't expect that, would you? I'll let you know how my sales go when it comes out there. It's due out in a couple of months. Yeah, let me know because we're oh, on we're on WhatsApp together, so we're going to stay in contact. And discuss, Chinese and discuss sales. And, yes. and, 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 yeah, and boast to each other about our Chinese sales, <laughs> which is fun. Um, fiction based on facts and research, because as we've said earlier on, both of you both said that the fiction has to be based on research. 
and it's an it's an easy way to interest non-academic readers into engaging with history. Are they losing out, or when people read the fiction, are they getting more? Are those people who only want to read facts and non-fiction actually losing out? And you've already addressed a bit of this, mm. Heather, when you when you mentioned some of the responses that you get from from readers all around the world. But but as a as a as a person who's interested in history, should we be encouraging people to read fiction in order to get a better understanding or to get into the minds of people and time periods from the past? I'm going to say yes, absolutely, because it does give a taste of the story and of that time. And that's better than not having a taste at all. And if it does then help them, a reader, go and look at something else. And look, a really quick story how I, when I knew that this story was possibly going to do okay. I have a 34-year-old son-in-law who was a police sergeant in Victoria. He had not read a book since he left school at 18. It just wasn't his thing. And he asked to read the manuscript of this before it was actually put into print. And he started reading it one night when he came home from night shift. And he rang me up a few hours later and was asking me a question about it. For the next three nights, he rang me and asked me a question about it. And then on the fourth night, he rang me and he said, Did you know? Because he had got to the point in the story where my book had not given him enough and he had had to go and find out more himself. And that's what I'm hearing, that people are getting that taste and then going and finding out more and hey that's got to be a good thing we're in conversation with heather morris and simon sabag montefiore authors of heather the tattooist of auschwitz and the soon to be released silka's journey simon jerusalem the biography uh, three novels set in mid 20th century soviet russia the soviet union written in history uh, two books about Stalin and children's books as well. We'll be back with more conversation straight after this ad break. The book of love is long and boring. This is People of the Book with Stephen Krabitz. We are in conversation with Heather Morris and Simon Sebag Montefiore. Heather, I want to ask you a question. Go. When you wrote the book, you didn't have any feeling that it was going to be as internationally a phenomenon as it's become. How, what was the process? You wrote the book, you sent it away to be published, Bonnie picked it up, but then when did the, the shock set in? I was going to self-publish, print a hundred copies and give them away to friends. Then an editor, a young editor in Melbourne, found out about it and I signed a contract with a small publishing company in Melbourne and it was only going to be published in Australia. I'm still a happy chappy about this. But then um, the big daddies came down from Europe, from London, and one of the owners from Bonnier in Sweden, just to meet the small new company in Melbourne. And they casually found out about this book. And immediately I got a call where I was working and said, can you come into our office? Mark Smith, the CEO from London, was there, and one of the owners from Sweden. And I went, no, I'm busy, I'm working. And they said, you have to come in. I did go in, and I looked at these two men, and they just looked at me, and they said, do you have any idea what you've got here? I said, yeah, I've got Lully's story. They said, no, we're taking this away. 
Mm. And um, even then it didn't register with me, and it was only when they went to, I think it was the uh, London Book Fair, they took it there before it was published, and the rights started being sold very, very quickly. That, uh, yes, it, um, I still can't process it. You know, I'm just happy to come and talk to people about it. Both of you have sold movie or TV rights to your books or some of your books. Have you both spoken about it already? And you'll see your written creations transformed into new forms. Is this a sign of society's thirst for history or people want a good story? And how do you feel about handing over something you've created to a group of other people to change its to change it in whichever way they want, you know, whichever way they're going to take it. Even just from the written to the audio visual form, that's a change. We'll start with Simon. Well, I'm, I mean, I, I'm quite happy because I tell you something, being a writer is quite lonely. It's quite fun being a member of a team and having people, you know, suddenly having a sort of meet, I mean, <clears throat> I have meetings in my house with my the producers of these various things. And actually I rather enjoy them. It's kind of fun. It's like, you know, it's like mm. I'm actually meeting some people, uh, which is quite <laughs> exciting. Um, but, but, and most of them have really embraced me, um, and, and, and I'm helping them. And I don't, you know, I'm helping them because in a way they're, fi- the ones who are doing the history books, they're fictionalizing the history. And I'm quite happy with that. I mean, Neil Jordan, for example, is writing the Jerusalem one. I mean, he's like an Oscar winning screenwriter, director, uh, film director who's done, you know, veteran actually. Um, and I'm very happy with what he's done with it. And I'm helping, you know, I'm working with him on that. But then there's a couple of other ones where I've been excluded, and that's not so much fun, but I, I just hope it gets made. So you've mentioned Jerusalem and The Royal Rabbits. Mm. Which other books are being turned into? Well, Catherine the Great is, has, has been bought by Angelina Jolie, and she's making it into, into a film, a single film, not a, not a drama series. But, um, but I don't know what the, I don't know, I haven't seen the script, so I'm kind of, I don't know what's, you know, what's, um, what it's going to be like. Um, but I, but the other ones, I'm just trying to, th- well the novels are being, uh, novels are being developed now. And Red Sky at Noon might be made into a film, because it's Italian. Uh, it's about the Italians in Russia partly, um, which is another kind of interesting, fascinating World mm. War II story. And also about the gulags. Um, so, but I, I'm quite happy with people, you know, um, taking away, I mean, I mean, you just want them to make a good film or a good series, don't you? It's all about yeah. the writing. Like everything, it's about the writing. My wife's going to be very happy about the Moscow Trilogy. She loved them, and she's pushed them on to everyone who will oh, listen good. to her. Oh, yeah. good. Well, that's, that's lovely to hear. And, Heather, how do you feel about your books being turned into something else? Well, given that I wrote it as a screenplay, that my, was my ultimate uh, aim to see it played out. Uh, I have been very protective about it, though. And uh, the the contract that was signed, I insisted at all times I had to be the script consultant. I concede I'm not a screenwriter. I was just a dabbler. And a professional screenwriter who I have spent many hours with um, is writing the script. Now they are sending me the episode breakdown. They're sending me the, the details. And I am objecting. And I have objected to about six or seven things that they have wanted to change or move around or a part of a Lully's character they have wanted to go down a different path and I've been delighted to say in every instance they have backed down and I think they concede that really if they did try and deviate too much from the book then they, they may get into a spot of bother with a few readers 
But to me, it is extremely important. I have this say. It's not really a control, but they listen to me, and um, I'm, I know that we will have a good adaptation of the book. I want to ask both of you, what is the normal day in your writing life? Uh, Heather, as you've been, and Simon, both of you, you, you travel so much, and you're meeting with so many people outside of your actual writing. When did you have time to write Silka's, Silka's Journey? Because you've been so busy in the last year. Um, yeah. And if there's going to be a third book, when is the time to write that? Because you're going to be so busy with the the the, the, the TV miniseries and then with publicity around the, the book. And Simon, you as well. This is, uh, you know, you're working on so many different projects at the same time. When you get to write, what is your daily writing? Heather, do you It's really screwed up right now. Um, I have been editing and working with the editors on Silka's Journey all across the United States, where I have just finished a five-week book tour late at night. Um, just yesterday, I got more notes and markups from the New York editors who are having um, some say in it. It's very difficult right now, but I'm getting there, and I'll just burn the midnight oil to do whatever it takes. Uh, on airplanes, the good thing, well, one of the good things about living in Australia to go anywhere in the world, I have to sit on a plane for 15 or 16 hours. And um, now that I am up the front of the plane that's got a decent-sized table in front of me, I can have my laptop out and I can work on planes. So far, far different to when I was writing The Tattooist. I was working full-time and writing that at night. But you are thoroughly enjoying this whirlwind of activity. Oh, heck yeah. Absolutely. You don't want to say to your editors, just leave me alone. I just want to write. But you're enjoying the whole, the whole process. No, and what's wonderful is that they um, accept that I want to do both parts of this. I want to write. I want to travel. And I'm delighted that my publishers support me doing both those. Every now and then they will say, hang on a minute, you need to arrange when I was in the States. You need a day off so that you can work for us. And we did that here and there. But um, get the support of the people, your team, and, and I feel I have a team with my publishers, both in Australia, London, and now also in New York. It's so wonderful to have authors who are accessible to like people like me who want to interview them, because so often the request for an interview is just no. And I understand people are busy, and it takes a lot of time to write. But Never say no. That's my motto. Yeah, Unless you've got a damn good reason. But um, I, I don't look for reasons. Me too. Yeah, I like. I mean, I think it's like. I, I think. I think because as writers, I think we're all just pretty happy that anyone's interested in our stuff, yes. aren't we? So I think like you, you never lose that gratitude, actually. No. And you're always happy to. You know, it's always you're always happy to hear from people. And actually, the digital world, social media, has actually been very nice because I used to only really receive um, letters from from prisoners in prisons. You know, on that sort of special paper they get here <laughs> and from manuscript. Um, but now. Thanks to social media, you know, you, I get on Twitter and Facebook. We, I'm sure you get, we don't get, you know, many, many, many sort of thousands of letters actually. Mm. And actually it's, it's fun. It's put us in contact. Uh, we can come back to this after the break. Yeah, we, <laughs> we'll take a break and be back in conversation in a few minutes. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. It all started in Hatfield with a single heartbeat that grew into the Hatfield Motor Group. 
Not only does the Hatfield Motor Group offer you award-winning, state-of-the-art dealerships, but you can now also do it all online with our many easy-to-use virtual dealership platforms. Apply for finance, buy a car, book a service, sell your car, or find genuine affordable parts. With the best network of VW and Audi dealerships in Gauteng, hatfieldgroup.co.za, rated number one in service. The book of love is long and boring. This is People of the Book with Stephen Kravitz. All right. We are in conversation with Simon Sebag Montefiore and with Heather Morris. I can't believe we, in the last few minutes, this hour has flown. I've been enjoying myself. I hope both of you have as well. I've got a lot more questions, and we're not going to get through to all of them. I'm going to put the question about your day, because you said it was chaos, aside, and I want to ask you about some memorable events that have happened because of your books, either researching or in interaction at festivals or whatever, very memorable events that have happened. Um, gosh, I mean, I've had many adventures, you know, really researching these books, actually. I mean, I started off, I, start, I decided I wanted to write about Catherine the Great in Potemkin when I was a war correspondent in all the wars after the breakup of the Soviet Union. And actually, you know, I had many adventures there. That was a great training. I had a very privileged life before that. I'd been in a sort of, you know, posh boarding school in England and Cambridge and so on. And I, and then I was an investment banker, believe it or not. And, um, and then the Soviet Union started to break up and I wanted to see it and experience it. And I felt I'd had a bit of a boring life except for one spell as a gold miner in the President's Stain gold mine in Valcom. <laughs> but that's another story. We don't have time for that. But, I think you can tell that both me and Heather have a kind of nose for stories, and we love stories, and I think that's one thing we've got in common. So I had many adventures, and that led to all my Russian history books, basically. And, I mean, just very quickly, I mean, a typical thing was, you know, I knew all the presidents of Georgia, because I'd been with them in, in, in all the coups and civil wars. And when I was, came to write Young Stalin, a lot of the archives, for example, were in, were in Georgia, and because I knew the, or I'd known all the presidents, I was a bit of a sort of well-known figure there at that time. And, you know, this is the early 2000s. And so when I went down there and they said the archives are closed, I went to the president and I said, can you open the archives? And they, Sarkashvili, and he just said, yeah, give him the archives because he's sort of a Georgian character. And so I, and that's where I found the, the, the memoirs of Stalin's mother. So that was an interesting discovery. And Heather? Uh, Look, going to book festivals and, and being and talking to small groups and large groups, I love it. Two things I'm going to mention quickly as being absolute highlights. Last April, being in Krakow with the March of the Living uh, students and, and adults there at that time for three days, just uh, for all the right reason, incredibly memorable and emotional experience for me. But one other I'm going to mention the middle of last year, I got a, a letter from a warden in a prison in the south of London, and he told me that half a dozen of the prisoners had read my book and had become quite emotionally affected by it, and they'd been talking to other prisoners about this man, Lully, this dude. He was in a prison way worse than ours, and he had got out and had a good life, and how they were taking hope that they too, once they left their prison, could have a good life. He asked me to write back to them, and instead of writing back the publishers and the prison authorities made it happen that I sat down for two hours with 100 very naughty boys in prison and spoke to them and just let them talk. And it was about Lully, it was about Gita, it was about the book, it was about them and their lives. And then at the end, when they were given a copy of my book each and they were asking me to sign it, 
A few of them had me give them their name, and then one said, I can't read. Can you make this out to my mum? And would you write, I'm sorry, mum. I promise I won't come back inside. And then another saying to me, would you write this to my wife and say, I'm sorry you're having to bring the kids up on your own. Would you write it to my 16-year-old daughter and tell her how proud Daddy is that she has a job interview? Three hours of the most emotional time of my life and watching those six guards that were in that room to supposedly guard me suck up the big ones too and become emotional. Hope. This book has given them hope. Last question. It's not one that I prepared, but the power of storytelling. We've got maybe a minute each because you just really have shown us the power. But just just to finish off the, the hour interview, Simon, we'll start with you. The power of storytelling. How do you as well, an I think it's I think it's the great responsibility of, of the writer. I mean, it's not just, especially with these sort of stories, it's not just a matter of writing it out. And I know that you can, you, I think, you know, these, these, these are things we must revere. These are stories and experiences we must revere. And the history is, is sacred in a way. I mean, the truth is sacred. How we tell it and how we, how we present it is, is up to us. And, you know, it's, we want to reach as many people as possible. And that's the great joy of writing, I think, don't you think? Absolutely. And if you want to tell a story that is going to remain in the reader's mind longer than the five minutes after they shut it, the, the book, then you've got to connect in an emotional way with them. And you can't be formulaic and just, well, I don't want to be, churn out a, a story written along the same sort of formula uh, as the previous ones, to me, story, tell it, tell it well, and make sure that you pepper it with all those wonderful emotional arcs that our day-to-day lives have. This has been a wonderful hour. Thank you so much, Heather, Simon, for coming in, coming to South Africa, and coming into our studios here at Chaifem, talking about we're all passionate about the stories that we, 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 you've written and we all enjoy reading. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's Thank lovely you. to be Thank here. Thank you. Absolutely.